BRICS, a group of emerging economies, will be expanding its membership. Myanmar's regime is interested. You know, this is sort of an instance where you're seeing the, the military try to infiltrate these uh, newer forms of, of multilaterals to try to gain some uh, level of, of legitimacy. It's been two years since the civilian national unity government declared an armed uprising against the junta. We get a battlefield update. What's really astounding to me is that two years into this people's war, the military is clearly losing ground. And yet there's been no reassessment of their strategy. In fact, they're doubling down on their four-cut strategy. And that's doomed to fail. Plus, exploitation and abuse of garment factory workers in Myanmar has increased since the coup. We speak to a labor organizer about why she thinks it's time for brands to leave the country. We people from Myanmar do not recognize the military as a government. And also, none of the international government recognize the military as a government. But the, the fashion brands, the multinational governments, they recognize the military as a government. But first, we'll have a rundown of this week's news from the Irrawaddy. You are listening to the Irrawaddy Newscast, a transmission of conflict and culture from inside and outside Myanmar. Thank you for listening and stay tuned. More than 50 detainees at a Sagang region prison have ended a hunger strike, which lasted nearly a week. It began after authorities seized medicine, food, clothes, and other possessions from inmates. Those things have now been returned. Prison conditions continue to be as bad as ever in Myanmar. We visited a museum run by the Assistance Association for Political Prisoners in Thailand to speak with a former political prisoner researching current conditions. So in our time and current situation is totally different. It's worse than our time. Because there are a lot of bribery and corruption in prison and a lot of oppression in prison compared to our time. This week, the United Nations Independent Investigative Mechanism for Myanmar reported a dramatic increase in war crimes and crimes against humanity to the UN Human Rights Council. In the past year, we have seen more brazen aerial bombings and indiscriminate shelling, resulting in the deaths of innocent civilians, including children. We have also seen increased executions of captured combatants and civilians, and intentional burnings of homes and villages. There has also been a rise in the number of arrests without due process, and we have collected credible evidence that some detainees have been subjected to torture, sexual violence, and other severe mistreatments. That was Nicholas Kumjian, head of that investigative body. More than 4,000 civilians have been killed and more than 24,700 individuals detained since the coup in 2021. The cash-strapped regime is now requiring its expat workforce to remit at least 25% of its foreign currency through Myanmar's banking system. That regulation requires workers to open a joint account at a bank regulated by the Central Bank of Myanmar if they plan to leave. Those who don't will be barred from working overseas for three years after their current work permit expires. The junta is going after cronies as commodity prices surge in the economically distressed country. 
Authorities detained crony Tenwin Za, who has close ties to Hunta Boss Men Online's family and whose businesses span gas stations, gem mining, telecoms, and logging. Lieutenant General Mo Mient Tun was also placed under house arrest for corruption. He oversaw Myanmar's economic affairs, chairing the junta-controlled missions on investment and foreign exchange. Testifying against Mo Myint Tun was Major General Yan Myung So. He had been running the junta's Central Committee on Ensuring the Smooth Flow of Trade and Goods. He was also detained last week. We spoke to economist Sean Turnell a couple weeks ago about the dire state of Myanmar's economy. You know, no matter what the metric is, uh, the budget deficit is now dramatically blown out. Taxation revenue has shrunk dramatically along with it. That uh, the bond sales uh, are not really proceeding as as they as they could be. Um, the banks are not really in, in a position to take up the bonds on offer. So all of that means that the government is just printing money hand over fist. Uh, as a consequence of that, we've got monetary instability, whether it be measured in terms of uh, high inflation rates, particularly relative to peers in Southeast Asia, uh, and a collapsing exchange rate. So, the, you know, the exchange rate's less than half of what it was um, before the coup. In a bid to stimulate the depressed economy, tourists from India and China will now receive visas on arrival. And regime soldiers have been showing up at stores and pubs in Yangon in an effort to force the sale of Myanmar beer. The military-controlled conglomerate that brews the drink has suffered from a nationwide boycott. BRICS, a block of economies which for now includes Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, has positioned itself as a rival to the G7 and Western economic dominance. That group notably includes some of the Myanmar regime's few allies. Last month, BRICS members decided to expand membership, the first time in over a decade. The junta, while not on that list of added countries, has expressed interest in joining. I spoke to Jason Tower on the topic. He's the country director for the Burma program at the United States Institute of Peace. Hi, Jason. What exactly is BRICS and what's its purpose? Really what it's all about is it's kind of a platform that's meant to represent, you know, developing countries and the, the, the interests and needs of kind of more of regional powers. It has uh, been involved in establishing kind of a financial platform. And recently, the platform has been looking to expand to incorporate uh, more countries from the developing world. And there's quite a few countries that have expressed interest in becoming observers in, in BRICS. So BRICS is now presently undergoing kind of a period of, of expansion. Um, I think similar to the um, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which has expanded uh, uh, recently, You've, you've seen um, quite a few countries in the region, and then you've also seen the military junta of, of Myanmar um, express interest in become an observer in that platform. So I think, you know, this is sort of an instance where you're seeing the, the military try to infiltrate these uh, newer forms of, of multilaterals to try to gain some uh, level of, of legitimacy. China is one of those members, maybe the biggest member in BRICS. Is there a political component to BRICS that aligns with China's ambition in the global economy? 
Uh, absolutely. I mean, China is looking to use all of these different forms of, of, of multilateral platforms to exert um, not only economic influence, but increasingly political and security influence. And I think one of the key things that China has been advancing is, you know, you've seen it since last year unveil its global security initiative. And this year it's uh, put out a white paper that has articulated a little bit more of a view of, of what China hopes to achieve, even uh, really changing international security norms. And so I think that through platforms like SEO, BRICS, that China is looking to exert more um, international uh, economic, political, and security influence. What are the implications of BRICS expanding to more countries? Yeah, no, I mean, there already are some plans in place for, um, for BRICS expansion. Um, so um, you know, it's very likely you're going to see um, more countries join um, BRICS. I think in terms of countries in um, Southeast Asia, though, um, Indonesia has shown quite a lot of interest in the platform. And I think one thing to keep in mind is that, um, you know, if the platform were to consider admitting, for example, say a military junta, that might create disincentives for other countries that are also seeking to apply that might be much more legitimate actor. I think in particular, Brazil and South Africa might have some concerns about an application coming from uh, from Lohanta. Why would Myanmar want to join this platform in the first place? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I would say there's really two reasons why the Junta would want to join BRICS. Uh, first of all, it's, it's suffering a crisis of legitimacy. You know, ASEAN is not uh, interacting with it as a legitimate government at this point. I think the majority of uh, ASEAN states have very serious concerns about interacting with the military junta in that way. Um, it got a further downgrading at the most recent ASEAN summit when it was decided that the um, military junta would not be given the opportunity to serve as a rotating chair in 2026. That's instead going to the Philippines. Um, so it's really trying to uh, bolster its international uh, legitimacy by finding alternative platforms that might accept it. And then I think a second reason is is that sanctions are starting to bite the regime harder and harder. And, you know, we're reaching a point now where the military is looking for alternatives in terms of, of financing and, and banking. And so with the BRICS becoming much more active in that area, I think that the Quinta is looking to BRICS as a possible um, means of, of diversifying its financial partnerships and maybe getting access to, to financing, access to uh, the currency that it needs to be able to sustain its war efforts. That was Jason Tower with the United States Institute of Peace. This month marked two years since the civilian National Unity government declared an armed uprising against the junta. The battlefield looks a lot different than it did at the start of the war. Ben Yuji claims the regime has lost 30,000 troops, half its combat force. At the least, it seems the military is increasingly spread thin. I spoke with Zachary Abuza to get an update on the military situation. He's a professor at the National War College in Washington. We're two years into the people's war and i think it's fair to say that the national unity government and their 300 pdfs have outperformed expectations um they have really been able to maintain their military operations throughout the country 
they have maintained their alliances with the Karen National Army, the Kachin Independence Army, and some others. Um, they have spread the Myanmar military very thin. They're fighting across multiple fronts, and they're just not as large uh, as many people believe them to be. Um, their light infantry divisions are spread very thin. Uh, they're undermanned. They're operating at unsustainable tempos. The NUG has a steady supply of weapons and ammunition now, which have really helped them. But, you know, they're still a long ways off. Uh, this is, this is a, going to be a protracted struggle. They have inherent weaknesses. They do not have uh, any defense against uh, the military's air power. They do not have long-range artillery. These are things that the, the, the military has and employs on a daily basis um, that really extends their reach. We know the military has very long, very vulnerable supply lines. Um, and what's different now is it goes, uh, they're, they're very vulnerable in the Bama heartland uh, from Magwe, Sagan. Um, you know, those used to be very safe regions for them to operate, and they just no longer are. What's really astounding to me is that two years into this people's war, the military is clearly losing ground. There's less territory under their control. They've had to put almost 50 townships under martial law. And yet there's been no reassessment of their strategy. They're not trying to do things differently. In fact, they're doubling down on their four-cut strategy. And that's, you know, doomed to fail. Resistance group attacks have crept closer to Naypyidaw, the capital. What do you make of this? The attacks in Naypyidaw or around Naypyidaw are very important in terms of causing... Uh, concern amongst the state administrative council, as the junta is formally known. Uh, it's a psychological blow because it, it really is a fortress capital. That said, I would really caution the energy from staging those sorts of attacks frequently, simply because uh, the military has aerial assets, they have artillery, they have a huge garrison there in Naypyidaw, and um, this is not the most uh, conducive grounds for the NUG to wage the type of war, guerrilla war, that they've been fighting very successfully so far. If they start to mount more attacks around Naypyidaw on a regular basis, uh, they will, the, the military will be there waiting for them. Um, so I think there are important to deal a psychological blow to keep the military a little bit off balance. But right now is not the time for an all-out offensive on Naypyidaw. Can you talk about what's happened in the east of the country, in Kia and Cayenne states? It seems Karen and Karini groups have had success in not only taking territory, but holding on to it. Yeah, let's get started in Cayenne state, because I, I think that's exactly right. The Karen have done a very good job uh, in taking territory and, you know, 
they're they're holding it as well. Um, the fighting there has been quite intense. The it's interesting how much of the border now uh, with Thailand uh, is starting to slip away from the the junta and their border guards forces. The fighting in Kaya State is actually more recent, and and that's a a change that we saw with the April defection of a border guards force uh, that had been allied with the junta. And they joined with the NUG, and they were a small force. But it was important for a couple reasons. First, it was the first defection in mass to the NUG. There have been defections since the coup, and NUG claims around 13,000 defections of police and soldiers. That that may be true. It might be a little high. Um, but but until recently, defections have been individuals. And we, we can talk why the rate of defections is so low, if, if you want. Um, but, but in Kaya State, you had the first defection of an entire force. Again, not large, but symbolic. And the military has stepped up their aerial campaigns and really tried to retake lost territory in Kaya State because they they did lose uh, control of important territory. And again, that's one of the important uh, border crossings to Thailand. And this is a regime that is increasingly dependent on border trade. There's been heavy clashes in northern Shan State between the Tong National Liberation Army and the junta. That level of fighting is new for the region post-coup what, what do you think is behind it? So the question is, why, why is the military kind of picking this fight against the TMLA now? And I think it has much more to do with the real estate. Uh, you know, the, the border crossing in Muse is not just an important crossing uh, economically, but potentially... The crossing is important for relations with China. Uh, China has been pushing for the uh, China-Myanmar economic corridor to really get going. It's it's been on the books for years, but very little has happened. Uh, China has been putting pressure on uh, the junta to get the port and special economic zone in Chokfu going. Uh, they need the railway uh, from China down to the port. Uh, the Chinese have sent in engineers to do some site work, uh, some studies uh, from the border in Muse uh, down to Mandalay. Um, so that area is very important. You know, the junta is desperate to keep the China supporting them. And the way that they can get the Chinese to underwrite their (laughs) uh, absolute mismanagement of the economy and uh, continue to subsidize them and sell them weapons is to provide the Chinese with the BRI projects that that China demands. That was Zachary Abuza, a professor at the National War College in Washington.
And now for a report on the war against the junta, the latest news from the ongoing conflict. Resistance fighters have killed at least 52 regime forces and allied militia members in the last week or so of clashes. Fighting continues in Kachin state between Hunta troops and the Kachin Independence Army. You're listening to footage of an ambush by the KIA on a military convoy. A resistance group in the Bago region shot dead a Hunta appointed ward administrator. She was appointed after her predecessor was killed in November. Following the killing of a regime-appointed village administrator in the Mandalay region, soldiers shot dead three men and dumped their bodies in a field. A Thai opposition MP has pressed the government to investigate reports that around 100 armed Myanmar soldiers crossed the border into Thailand's Thak province. They were fleeing clashes with the Korean National Liberation Army. People's Defense Force Mandalay says 76 Hunta soldiers were killed in nine clashes and eight drone strikes during operations in the region and northern Shan state between July and September. And nearly 100 religious buildings, mostly churches, were destroyed or damaged in Hunta attacks in Chin state since the coup. That's according to the Chin Human Rights Organization. The Irrawaddy collected the following reports from People's Defense Force and ethnic armed organization sources. You can find more at the Irrawaddy's website in the section called War Against the Junta. 4,078 civilians have been killed since the coup, that's according to the Assistance Association for Political Prisoners. Major European fashion brands, Sweden's H&M and Spain's Zara, will be leaving Myanmar amid reports of deteriorating conditions for workers. Those workers, most are women, face wage theft gender-based violence, and attacks on their civil liberties. The European Union, meanwhile, believes closing factories in Myanmar will harm workers more than help. King Ong disagrees. She's president of the Industrial Workers Federation of Myanmar and treasurer of the Confederation of Trade Unions Myanmar. She's also a former garment worker. And she's come to the view that global brands should leave Myanmar. She first told me how labor rights changed after the coup and the failure of a dispute recognition mechanism, which was created for workers to contact brands directly about abuse. After the coup, there is no freedom association. So trade unions are under oppression. So we cannot exercise freedom association and call it the bargaining right. But we set up a dispute resolution mechanism to help the workers to settle their dispute at the workplace. But we stopped this mechanism because uh, trade unions and uh, workers face uh, retaliation by the employer because of our activities to help the workers. What kind of retaliation did they face? By using the dispute resolution mechanism, we set up with the brands uh, we can solve some dispute on the from the ground, but the, the factory manager, in one case, factory manager threat union president life during our negotiation for non-payment factory closure for six months for seven hundred over seven hundred workers. The manager in a known group went to find the union president on the street of where he stayed. They did not know exactly the address of the president, but they show his photo and um, try to find him. 
At the time, the union president was out of home. We don't know what would happen if he was in the home at home. So we have to move him and his wife do a service. And uh, some of our members at the factory were kidnapped from the factory. It had been like uh, the manager allowed the unknown group to the factory and they call our member, six or our member by name and ask workers to go with that group. And then our members were disappeared for one day and one night. And they were threatened by knife and they were not given food or water. In contacting the brands about this abuse and being specific about it, like mentioning specific factories, that can put the workers in danger, correct? Like this kidnapping case, I wrote to the brand because I want the brand to know what is happening in the factory. But I couldn't make any demand to take action on the factory because if if the the brand as the factory manager, I don't know what will happen to this cis worker who were kidnapped. So that's why we give a priority of the worker safety, then we could not make any demand. We could not find any remedy. And so you think brands should exit the country? Yeah, that the brand doesn't have any leverage to help the workers and to improve the working condition. But uh, they are existing in Myanmar, very harmful to the workers. The brands are supporting financially to the military. Because last year in 11 months, the military, the Myanmar earned $4.7 billion from garment industry, garment export. So $4.7 billion, how much worker earned from $4.7 billion? We have now 450,000 workers in the sector. The minimum wage is $1.5 uh, $1 per month. So only less than 6% of $4.7 billion are used for salary of 450,000 workers. Where are the other many go? So I, I, that's why we are saying all the multinational companies, all the fashion brands, they are responsible for killing and uh, arrest and torture to our people because they are, they are supporting the military financially. Not only that, they are also giving legitimacy to the military. We people from Myanmar do not recognize the military as a government. And also none of the international government recognize the military as a government. But the, the fashion brands, the multinational government, they recognize the military as a government. Kangzar Ong, labor organizer and educator. You've been listening to the Irrawaddy Newscast. You can find links to the stories mentioned here in the show notes, as well as a way to support the Irrawaddy's reporting. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.